Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you in association with the ANU College of Medicine, Biology and Environment and the ANU College of Physical and Mathematical Sciences. To find out more about studying science and a career in science policy, go to science.anu.edu.au. Today on the pod, the pointy end where science meets policy from someone who knows it better than most. We'll hear about some of the big challenges facing science and policymakers. Some bacteria will be completely immune to all our available antibiotics in time, and that would have a dramatic effect on human life. Why scientists need to have a louder voice in policy debates. But I think you've seen that in climate change, where scientists have sort of stood up to be counted and um, taken on the mantle of saying, look, this is not fiction, this is the evidence, this is why we believe this to be a problem. And the importance of getting the message right. I made a mistake of of saying that even in the reasonable worst-case scenario, uh, the amount of radiation that would be hitting the population in Greater Tokyo was about equivalent to eating 10 bananas. I've been persecuted by the uh, banana importers ever since. Stay with us. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little bit deeper into the public policy challenges facing the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce. Today on the pod, we are delving further into the relationship between science and public policy. On the last podcast, I spoke with three experts about strategic ways to bridge the gap between science and policy. Today, though, we are hearing about many of the real-world issues at the heart of that sometimes difficult intersection. We'll be taking a look at how that relationship plays out on issues as broad as genetically modified food, antibiotic resistance, and even nuclear radiation. My guest on the pod is someone who has direct experience at an international level with both science and policy. Former Chief Scientific Advisor of the United Kingdom, Professor Sir John Beddington. From 2008 until 2013, Professor Beddington reported directly to the British Prime Minister. He was responsible for increasing the scientific capacity across Whitehall by encouraging all major departments of state to recruit a Chief Scientific Advisor. While in the job, he dealt with a number of emergencies, including the swine flu epidemic, the volcanic ash incident that closed eastern Atlantic airspace, and the Fukushima nuclear incident. He was awarded a knighthood in 2010, and in June 2014 received the Order of the Rising Sun from the Japanese government. He's also a senior advisor to the Oxford Martin School and a professor of natural resource management at Oxford University. Professor Sir John Bennington recently attended a Chief Scientist Roundtable hosted by PolicyForum.net and Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. I caught up with him shortly afterwards to hear his thoughts on the state of science in public policy around the world and what scientists can do to really get policymakers listening to the evidence. Here's what he had to say. So, uh, Professor Sir John Bennington, thank you for joining the podcast. You're welcome. 
The Sustainable Development Goals and the US Paris Climate Agreement are perhaps suggest that policymakers are considering the necessity of scientific evidence in the formulation of ideas. Does, do those two agreements suggest that the marriage of science and policy is a happy one? I think you have got to go back a stage and think about the whole issue of how science affects policy. And in some uh, situations, you have that the policy is based or dependent on scientific evidence. But there are obviously, when formulating policy, lots of other things that are involved. So they might be economic, they might be legal, they might be practical. So the idea that, in a sense, we live in a world where the scientific evidence will completely drive policy is nonsense. Let me give you an example for, um, that occurred during my time in the UK was when uh, one of the advisors on drug um, abuse pointed out the fact that actually some of the drugs that were being banned at very high levels, you know, high penalties for this, were actually relatively benign in terms of their effect on society and humanity compared with things like smoking and alcohol. Um, the problem is, of course, is that, that albeit that's true, it doesn't take you very far um, because for, one has got to ask questions about unintended consequences. For example, if you, one has had a legalization of certain of the of drugs, you might see a big expansion of organized crime. So there are issues that are taken into account. That's not a particularly good example, but it's, it's clearly there. If you ask me about the international agreements, well, to an extent, these have got to be a negotiation. Um, you're talking about many hundred countries that are actually involved in this negotiation, some of which are politically, um, shall we say, incompatible. And that therefore, what you come out with in agreements, and I think the Paris Agreement is a particularly good one, is that um, it is some, to an extent a degree of compromise, and that compromise is necessary. The scientific input has been largely from individual scientists working in climate science, but obviously the IPCC route, where there had been very substantial amounts of effort being put into coming out with scenarios and looking at what happens if you don't mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. That is all very, very important. But there is actually, and I think the Paris Agreement does have a chance of doing this, but there are lots of holes in it. You know, if one was wanting to say, what is the chance that actually um, there will be a significant decline in greenhouse gas emissions over the next 20 years? The answer is it will depend almost entirely on what happens to the economic growth, growth of the world economy, rather than anything that's happening out of the Paris Agreement. That doesn't mean to say you don't want one. You do need to have agreements, you need to have international agreements, and the, and the development goals, which you pointed out earlier on, are really, you know, they are all sensible. You know, but I would have a query about, one, about the development goals. I think they, they fail to focus on one of the really big issues, um, which is nutrition. And the n nutrition, I'm involved in it now, I haven't been prior to the last couple of years, is something that really is a problem. There is give or take, a little less than a billion people uh, don't have sufficient calorific input, so they're wasting. Then if you look at um, lack of key nutrients, there's probably something of the order of one and a half to two billion people who don't have sufficient nutrients. 
And then coupled with that, there's about a billion to two billion people who are obese or have um, rather rather an excess of um, nutrients in their diet. And then you have this sort of tragedy of young children where something like 25% of um, children who die in the developing world die because of poor nutrition. Now, this is a major scandal. There's nothing about nutrition in the development goals. So why is that? Why, why was I it I think it's probably that, that people, you know, this again, it's a negotiation. I don't think that people are trying to hide it. I think the world community recognise this is a major problem. FAO are having a year of nutrition at the moment. But I think that, it, that it's the necessary incompleteness of international agreements because the key is to get an agreement and that is what what has happened doesn't mean to say they're bad means they're useful but they're not perfect so to go back to that original question what is the current state of the marriage of between science and policy is it in a good way well it's it it varies very much between countries some countries will base policy very largely on the basis of scientific evidence others will not and, you know, it's not, it's not appropriate for me to sort of single out um, individual countries where essentially scientific evidence is ignored. But I think it's more to do with individual politicians. So, for example, Obama, when I think about two years after he went into the White House, said it is really important to take into account scientific evidence, even when it's inconvenient. In fact, especially when it's inconvenient. Very nice quote, one I tend to use quite a lot. But I'd contrast there with um, Junkers, the new president of the, uh, well, not that new these days, but the president of the European um, Commission, who said that, uh, albeit this was to do with GM technology, that um, the scientific evidence should not weigh outweigh the political views of member states. Right, OK. So... Depends where you look. Sometimes you get something good. And I wouldn't say the USA is in a particularly strong position for scientific evidence at the moment. I mean, moving on to the USA, President Trump has said that, uh, for example, he said that climate change is a fiction invented by the Chinese. Does that sort of attitude spell even tougher times ahead for using science to tackle policy problems? I think it probably means that it's going to be tough to get uh, scientific evidence taken into deep consideration in policy in the USA, um, but I don't think it's it, that is the case for the rest of the world. In general, are policymakers taking science seriously enough? Again, you gen- you're seeking a generalisation which doesn't um, apply. Some do, some don't. And I think the there are a few interesting issues. For example, if you move away from the ministerial teams... Uh, through to, in parliamentary democracies, individual MPs, very, very few MPs have any scientific training. So there is a communication issue that one needs to be pondering. I don't know about Australia, but I think there's only two MPs in the UK who have science degrees. Now, that is interesting. It doesn't mean these people are stupid. It doesn't mean to say that, that they can't understand scientific arguments. But it actually does mean that some of the ethos of science is actually lost. But in terms of the way in which evidence applies to um, policy, I've already said that it's not the only thing, but it's quite impossible to be thinking about a science policy, sorry, a a policy decision that actually goes against fundamental chemical, biological or ecological or physical principles. You know, it just won't work. On the other hand, I think that the importance of science is really in drawing out the implications of different policy 
um, decisions. So if you do this, this is the likely thing that would happen. And there is a, there's a real tension to do with time scales. Climate change is obviously the one that everybody thinks at. But there's a time delay in, in the world's climate so that the weather we're currently experiencing is driven by the greenhouse gases that were in the upper atmosphere in about 1995. So there's give or take about a 20-year time delay. So if you're, as I was, chief scientific advisor, going to prime minister or cabinet and saying, we really must cut greenhouse gas emissions dramatically, the question comes back is, well, when will we see the benefits? And the answer is in 20 years' time, which, given a five-year political cycle, is not going to be going down too well. And it's interesting because... The big, um, in, the big sort of change in climate policy in the UK was with the um, enactment of the Climate Change Act. And that involved all party support. And there are other issues that actually involve um, a need to be thinking way beyond the electoral cycle or five years. Infrastructure investment, for example, tends to be something that's operating on several decades and again, you need to have that pushed through, probably with some form of cross-party overall parliamentary consensus. In other societies, where there is not a, a parliamentary democracy, you have a, things in which certain decisions are taken, possibly on the basis of scientific evidence. For example, some of the air pollution decisions being taken currently by the Chinese government aren't entirely dependent on issues to do with concerns about climate change but also concerns about air pollution so there's no generalization that you can actually do and my experience is obviously within the UK where you know my you know you we have a particular form of parliamentary democracy I think the other thing that is really important in getting scientific and I, by scientific I don't just mean physics chemistry biology I mean the social sciences as well and indeed engineering evidence taken into consideration I think that what you have there is the need to have that uh, that evidence coming from people who are trusted by the politicians so for example um, when I was in government, there was a big controversy about the use of uh, fracking to extract gas and oil subsequently. And there was a lot of stuff coming out that, you know, you were having terrible environmental effects and so on. To move beyond the yes you do, no you don't sort of discussion, what we had was the, um, I actually asked the Royal Society and the Royal Academy of Engineering to produce a report on the environmental impacts of, shale, of um, shale gas extraction. And, you know, they're pretty trusted bodies. You know, the Royal Society is the second oldest scientific society in the world. Um, and the Royal Academy of Engineering, you know, universally respected. So when you get a body like that coming out with statements which are pretty clear, government will actually do it. On the other hand, if you get an individual set of professors in a particular university coming out with a view and somebody in another university is disagreeing with it, uh, or that there are caveats that people feel that they should have included, you don't have, uh, you don't have any form of natural trust being built up. And that's important. Doesn't mean to say you always go to the people who are who are elderly who have actually got into the Royal Society. I'm not sure what the average age now is, but it's certainly not 23. And you need to be thinking about 
scientific advice that is trusted by politicians. Well, how do you actually get that? The answer is you've got to have been involved with politicians and you've quite often proved to be both right and coherent. We're here at ANU, which has got strengths in both science and policy. But are our universities actually doing enough? Are they producing the type of graduates who are comfortable in both policy and science and taking science to politicians? Well, some are, I think. You can't generalise. You know, you, you, I'm sure, I don't know a great deal about ANU, but I'm sure there are people whose major, major interests are in chemistry, physics, evolutionary biology, population genetics or whatever. And that the last thing they're interested in doing is actually getting their work into, um, into a policy framework because they are fascinated and that's why they're scientists. On the other hand, there are people who feel that they, work, they want to address policy-based issues and you know the discussion that I've been attending this morning and uh, it's clear that there are people here in the Crawford School who are very very interested in science into policy and who actually are involved in the practical levels and there and there are schemes for example in the UK where people where students who are working in science have the chance to embed themselves in departments of state or indeed with particular uh, politicians. And so there is that. I think it's a very odd subject area to say, I want to focus on science policy. If you have got no training in science. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And that your training is, shall we say, in sociology or politics. Um, I think that there, and you know, obviously individuals will be different and individuals be more or or less well read and understanding what the scientific method or the engineering methods are about. But I think it's, um, you know, I think I would probably be quite resistant to a suggestion that um, Oxford should have, um, let's say, a master's degree course in science policy. I think that would be something that I would not find particularly attractive. I certainly wouldn't have done it myself, uh, though I've been involved in um, developing policy and the scientific implications for policy over many, many years. What, we, what I think is really important is something, rather than formal courses, is sort of tasters. So, for example, the PhD students in my department at Oxford come to a presentation probably no more than twice a year in which we have the head of policy at the Royal Society. This last one was in January. We had the head of policy in the Royal Society. We had the person who was the main advisor on um, data and cyber issues to number 10, and we had me. And we all told anecdotes and pontificated to the students, but we tried to, tried to indicate what is involved. And that was, uh, that's the sort of thing that I think can bring a taste 
for of interest and many students are are working on areas where they really feel there are important policy implications and therefore would like to think about how it's done. So a lot of people start with a science background but some will naturally be drawn towards I think so and it and you know that that is probably not conditioned by the subjects they take but I think that you know this is they they want to do something and actually see something happen in the political process. Now, you know, if I think about climate change, a lot of the um, people who are working in the IPCC, you know, essentially do rather complex mathematical modelling of the upper atmosphere and how it affects the weather and how it affects climate. Only latterly, when they were realising the implications, have a number of them got very involved in trying to push and point out that if something isn't done, there are very, very unpleasant implications for the future of humanity. I think the same as could be said recently about um, issues to do with air pollution, for example, where the analysis that is being done points to air pollution being a very major source of, of mortality as you go into the future. And people have, who, who have been studying air pollution and its effect on human health have, in a sense, said this has got to be treated seriously. And the, the biggest issue at the moment, I would say at the If I looked and said what worries me most, I would say it's antibiotic resistance because the the sort of pathway of drug discovery of new antibiotics hasn't much changed. You know, the frequency of which they're discovered is um, pretty much constant over time, but with increasingly large sums of money spent on development, whereas the resistance of common um, bacteria to, antibi- to antibiotics is t- going at a far faster rate. So, you know, you can extrapolate the two curves and you start to see that some, uh, some um, bacteria will be completely immune to all our available bio- antibiotics in time. And that would have a dramatic effect on human life. You know, the, um, the sort of figures that um, are banding around, and of course they're totally speculative, and you beware spurious accuracy, but if antibiotic resistance really went and continued to go at the current rates and are extrapolated, you're talking about sort of many tens of millions of deaths per annum from the fact that people would not be able to have common operations, they would die from tuberculosis, they would die from any form of complications. And, you know, the pre-antibiotic days were ones where not, where the longevity was considerably less than it is now. So are our policymakers doing enough to tackle that issue? And are our scientists doing enough to raise it with our policymakers as a crucial issue? Yeah, I think in the, I, I can only speak for the UK here. Um, the, um, the chief medical officer of the UK is Sally Davis. She's been raising this over the last four or five years um, and pointing this to be a major problem. The government commissioned um, a, chapter, who, a chap called Jim O'Neill to do a report on agriculture and the use of antibiotics in agriculture and whether it was leading to problems. There is a real concern that the basic model of pharmaceutical development may not be suited to antibiotics um, because you have the potential that resistance will grow and therefore the drug you've developed for 
enormous investment may not be last for very long. So there are some real issues there, and I think it is being taken very, very seriously, certainly in the UK, and I couldn't comment on what happens in Australia. I just don't know. I'm interested in where the sort of public views on science fit into this debate. Are scientists doing enough to educate the public, or is that not their responsibility? Well, it clearly is the responsibility. I think the, um, I think it depends what sort of questions you have. I was involved in the aftermath of the Japanese tsunami, and one of the issues that came out from that, of course, was the water going in and severely damaging um, Fukushima Daiichi, which is one of the two plants, two nuclear plants in in the Fukushima province. And there was an enormous amount of concern about the potential radioactive material having detrimental effects on on the human population in the immediate vicinity and as far as south and as Tokyo. It was nonsense from a scientific point of view. And one of the things that I was involved in was a sort of series of question and answers on phone-ins to the British Embassy in Tokyo in which I brought health people, myself, physicists, to answer questions. And I think on that, we were really quite um, useful in the sense that we were able to say to people, you know, don't worry. I made a mistake of um, saying that even in the reasonable worst-case scenario, uh, the amount of radiation that would be hitting the population in Greater Tokyo was about equivalent to eating 10 bananas. Um, and um, I've been persecuted by the uh, banana importers ever since. <laughs> I'm just very thankful I didn't say that it was uh, equivalent to having a weekend in Cornwall, otherwise I'd never dare to leave <laughs> and go to the West Country. But, it, but I think that there are useful things there. But I think, I think also in some issues that scientists have tried really quite hard, but there is an erosion... Uh, but either by industry or by NGOs who have an economic interest in doing it. The absolute classic is um, GMOs, where there is no evidence that genetically modified organisms of any sort that have been developed have produced actual harm to human health. But there is a a major um, push by NGOs, not just to get individual organisms that have been developed through genetically modified material banned, but from any organism that's been developed, which is scientific nonsense. Now, that's the thing where you get into really quite difficult questions because there are people are not evidence-based on this. And the fact that, you know, you get many reports coming out saying that, you know, there is no real, there's no evidence whatsoever um, that GMO technology as a whole or indeed with individual GMOs has actually affected in any way human health or indeed the ecosystem that's the sort of thing that is is debated and people will say well there's no evidence but that doesn't mean to say it hasn't happened and that's a that's quite a difficult discussion and people invoke I think incorrectly the precautionary principle and saying we haven't got any evidence but we think it's likely so by the precautionary principle we should ban it I don't think that's a sensible use of uh, of time and you know given the 
major problems of nutrition, which I spoke about earlier, and indeed agricultural production to meet the problems of food and water security. It's not the silver bullet, but it is one potential technique that could actually improve things. Interestingly, the new technique of gene editing has the potent where you can essentially operate with one organism, but uh, sit, but um, interact with its DNA to synthesize um, organisms which have particular traits, for example, resistance to drought or resistance to disease, but does not involve bringing in genetic material from another organism, is something that is actually working very well lots of scientific work going on that which in a sense may ultimately make that that debate largely irrelevant it sounds to me like what you're saying about the debate around gmos has echoes of the debate around climate change in that it's a uh, a discussion which is uh, underpinned with emotion as well as evidence from a scientific point of view what can you do to counter those types of emotion-led arguments? I think that what you can do is lay out the evidence and say this is the evidence for and against. You shouldn't bias that evidence. You shouldn't claim certainty when it isn't there. And that's the normal process of providing scientific advice into policy. And the same should be said of providing scientific evidence to um, stimulate or inform public debate. The fact that emotions run high makes it a bit more difficult, but I don't think that that excuses scientists from uh, avoiding having to get involved. So it's just repeatedly stating the evidence? That's the, key, that's the key to getting through to the public? Well, there's an example of some work that was done um, at Rothamsted Research, which is one of the... Well, it's certain, one of the oldest research establishments in agriculture has started in the 19th century. It's got plots that run for... have been running since about 1840. Uh, experimental plots and they developed um, um, a GMO technology which meant that produced a pheromone that would attract aphids and sorry it would repel aphids not attract them and um, in a wheat and there was an enormous um, outcry from certain um, NGOs against this this was you know threatening the whole of the world's wheat supplies and so on and actually what the scientists did there, and it was way before I was involved with them, but I was chief scientist at the time, so knew about it, they actually engaged on in radio debates, they would go to public meetings, they would you know, listen to what was the concerns, and they would try to answer it in a rational way. It involved quite a lot of, in, of commitment of time, but they did it, and it did it well. That is asking quite a lot of individual scientists. But I think you're seeing that in climate change where scientists have sort of stood up to be counted and um, taken on the mantle of saying, look, this is not fiction, this is the evidence, this is why we believe this to be a problem. And I think that is something that should happen more often, probably. And I don't know some of the sort of key domestic issues that you have in Australia, but the sort of issues that one would want to have is if there is a debate about the science, could you be be certain that first of all that the weight of evidence is on one side or not and if it is you should be saying so or if there's major uncertainty you should be saying so the the real issue that you must never do as a scientific advisor or indeed a scientist who's involved in this advice is claim certainty when you don't have it that would be the ultimate mess just one one final question if I, if i may john You've been around politicians for a long time. What's your number one tip to scientists 
who might want to get political leaders to listen to scientific evidence? How do you get that? Get them to listen to that? I think you've got to be trusted, which I've covered earlier on, and I do think you need to have built up a bit of trust. I think you also need to be focusing on what are the um, concerns that a politician would have about a particular scientific result. So um, you have Obama saying we should take science into account, especially when it's inconvenient. Um, But I think that scientists probably do need to be thinking about quite how inconvenient it is and pointing out that that is something that that could have a a major problem. When I was in government, I never had a situation where, in a sense, I was asked to provide evidence to support a policy. That would be a resigning issue. But I have produced evidence which was not taken into account when they decided, or was taken into account, but the implications were that that uh, no decision was taken in favor, based on the science alone. The classic one is homeopathy, which um, is scientific nonsense, um, and yet our National Health Service still puts a little bit of money into homeopathy, but not a lot, a few million, you know, and... Um, the, uh, you know, it's nonsense. The response from the Department of Health when I raised it in the parliamentary committee, and indeed the parliamentary committee endorsed this, was this should stop. But the response from the Department of Health has been to say it is not a great deal of money. There are placebo effects on individuals. Um, it, it is a reasonable thing to be doing in certain circumstances. Fair enough, you know. You know, I'm not going to die in the ditch on it. If somebody had said, go out and find evidence to show that homeopathy works, I would have resigned. <laughs> so as a scientist, pick, pick, your fight, pick your fights carefully. Yeah, pick your fights carefully, but also um, pick the ones that you feel are really important to you. Um, you know, people will have different scientific backgrounds. People have different scientific interests and different passions. And if there are things where you feel things are going badly wrong, um, or, or that scientific evidence needs to be thought about, those are the ones to focus on. Professor Sir John Beddington, thanks very much. You've been listening to Policy Forum Pod, and I had the pleasure of speaking there with Professor Sir John Beddington. Professor Beddington was one of the speakers at Policy Forum's recent event, Bridging Science, Economics and Policy Silos. Video recordings of the presentations from that event, as well as speeches and a number of articles, all of which are well worth a read, are available on Policy Forum. There are links in the text accompanying this pod. So what did you think of the issues raised in that interview? You can tweet us at Apps Policy Forum or find us on Facebook where we are Asia-Pacific Policy Society. We love hearing your feedback and really appreciate everyone who shares, tweets, likes and helps us get the word out about the series. If you've enjoyed today's podcast and you're feeling generous, please leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds or so and doing so will be a big help to us. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with public policy issues throughout the region at policyforum.net. We'll be back again soon with another Policy Forum pod, but until then, cheerio. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.